All right, so I'm going to be teaching today, and I kind of feel bad because I'm interrupting this awesome series that Pastor Tony is doing on the mysteries of God. If you haven't checked it out yet, go online, listen to it. It's really cool, but we're going to continue that next week, and we're going to tie into it a little bit today. And you'll see you have some notes. I had notes. Oh, well. I don't need them. Um, These notes aren't the same notes that I'm using. These are almost like if you want to go deeper, you can use these notes on your own. If you want to use the very notes that I'm using, you can get them online. Um, And we're going to be asking the question today, is revival sustainable? And I didn't know the answer for most of my life. I just, you know, I've heard it both ways. God, it seems from experience that he moves in waves, that waves happen, awakenings happen for a season, an important time or whatever. So I was like, well, that seems, seems logical because it's what I've experienced. It's what I've seen. Um, and I had to do some research through the scripture. Uh, is revival sustainable? So I'm going to show you what I found in here, and then you guys can decide if you agree with what I found. Anyway, let's talk about revival for just a second. I pulled some snippets from some various snippets that are referring to various revivals from the internet. So from some website called sandstorms.com, it says, what were the results of this awakening? Talking about the Welsh revival, which, Gary, when was the Welsh revival? 1906, 1907. What were the results of this awakening? During the time of revival, the police were left with virtually nothing to do, and the courts were empty. Saloons and bars shut down for lack of business. Public drunkenness was almost non-existent. Old debts, many long forgotten, were paid off in full. Traveling theatrical agencies canceled their engagements as everyone was in church. Profanity disappeared. It was said that horses everywhere were in complete confusion. They had become accustomed to responding to their master's profane shouts and kicks and cursing, virtually all of which had disappeared. On one rugby match, a pastor said he heard only one man cursing, who thereupon repented. Of the 40,000 present, 10,000 began singing hymns. Relationships were healed and marriages restored. This last description of the revival perhaps sums it up. So here's a quote. It was plainly evident now to everybody that God had answered the agonizing prayers of his people and had sent a mighty spiritual upheaval. A sense of the Lord's presence was everywhere. His presence was felt in the homes, on the streets, in the mines, the factories and schools, and even in the drinking saloons. So great was his presence felt that even the places of amusement and carousel became places of holy awe. Many were the instances of men entering taverns, ordering drinks, and then turning on their heels, leaving them untouched. Wales, up to this time, was in the grip of football fever with tens of thousands of working class men, and uh, tens of thousands of working class men thought and talked only of one thing. They gambled also on the result of the games. Now, the famous football players themselves got converted and joined the open-air street meetings to testify what glorious things the Lord had done for them. Many of the teams were disbanded as the players got converted and the stadiums were empty. Crazy. Around that same time, 
um, on this side of the ocean, uh, Azusa Street. This revival began April 9, 1906, and continued roughly until 1915. On the night of April 9, 1906, Seymour and seven men were waiting on God on Bonnie Bray Street when suddenly, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor, and the other seven men began to speak in tongues and shout out uh, loud, praising God. In a time of racial segregation, this movement brought all races together. Proud, well-dressed preachers came to investigate. Soon, their high looks were replaced with wonder. Then conviction comes, and very often you will find them in a short time wallowing on the dirty floor, asking God to forgive them and make them as little children. Among first-hand accounts were reports of the blind having their sight restored, diseases cured instantly, and immigrants speaking in German, Yiddish, and Spanish, all being spoken to in their native language by uneducated black members who translated the languages into English by supernatural ability. So many missionaries went out from Azusa, some 38 left in October 1906, that within two years, the movement had spread over 50 nations, including Britain, Scandinavia, Germany, Holland, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, South Africa, Hong Kong, China, Ceylon, and India. Christian leaders visited from all over the world. And then if you guys just saw the movie, you know a little bit about the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus Movement. In the late 60s and early 70s, and many of you might have even been a part of that, when America had lost their hope in their government, when the religious societies looked down on everyone who did not look just like them, when the culture of young people looked to drugs, Eastern mysticism, and so-called free love for answers but came up empty or dead, this revival hit California and spread so fast and so radically that it shaped the world we live in today. Thousands of counterculture hippies were saved and turned from drugs and sex to the one thing that truly satisfies Jesus Christ. Art exploded from this movement and Christian pop and rock was born. What can take a person who's been looked down on by religious leaders, a person who did everything good church people aren't supposed to do, a person hooked on drugs and turned them into radical evangelists of the gospel, only one thing, an encounter with the very real Jesus. This is stuff that's been going on all over the world throughout history. And just recently, February 18th of this year, this article was... Um, placed about the Asbury Revival. But this past Wednesday was different, the article says. After the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing a final chorus, and then something began to happen that defies easy description. Let me just pause there for a minute. I want to be a continuous part of something that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence, and they did not want to go. They stayed and continued to worship. They are still there. I teach theology across the street at Asbury, this is what this person is saying, at uh, Asbury Theological Seminary. When I heard of what was happening, I immediately decided to go to the chapel to see for myself. When I arrived, I saw hundreds of students singing quietly. They were praising and praying earnestly for themselves and for their neighbors in our world, expressing repentance and contrition for sins and interceding for healing, wholeness, peace, and justice. Many people say that in the chapel they hardly even realize how much time has elapsed. 
It is almost as though time and eternity blur together as heaven and earth meet. Anyone who has witnessed it can agree that something unusual and unscripted is happening. From the scriptures, we get a prototype of revival in Genesis. And it is when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and the earth was formless and void. And I've talked about this before. The Hebrew for formless and void is tohu wabohu, and it means empty and chaotic. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon emptiness and chaos and brought it to order and beauty. That's the prototype. That's the prototype. And then we go on and we see one of the first revivals involving humans crying out to God. We don't have a lot of details. Genesis 4.25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, naming him Seth, saying, God has granted to me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's just a half a sentence. People began to call on the name of the Lord. But think about that half a sentence for a second. So at this point in time, we've got thousands of humans that are in one of the most secular cultures of all time. There wasn't even false religions yet. And there wasn't any Christianity or Judaism. The only thing that existed was some stories of their great-grandfather, Adam and Eve, had some encounter with God, and maybe they're telling everybody about his generosity and his goodness, but, you know, they're spreading so rapidly and they're living so long. It's just a big, secular world, and then all of a sudden, we don't have the details, but we do know this. People began to call on the name of the Lord early on. So that's like probably the first revival. I don't know. Anyway, all these revivals and many others started with that part, calling on the name of the Lord with prayer. Um, a small group or many, often for long periods, uh, with no excitement typically, just crying out to God for more of Him. And I'm going to get ahead of myself right now, but it's okay. I don't care. Tony talked about it last week, um, how we are the temple of God, both individually and corporately. Let me actually read that verse. I think I have it right here. Uh, John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So, as we individually and corporately abide in Jesus, and then we come together and we abide in Jesus, and then together we're the temple of God where sacrifices of worship happen, united or separately, all together, then, then we see the move. That's that's when it begins to happen. That's, at some point, God's like, this is what I've been waiting for. And then he, he pours it out. So in all these cases, he pours out his spirit, defies our expectations, and does things that cannot be manufactured by humans. Most of the time, these revivals fade and end over some years. But can revival be sustained? Is it God's will that it comes in waves, or is it God's will that it be sustained? Uh, when an individual gets saved, they experience a personal revival. They literally feel revived, born again, made new, excited, full of love and peace and joy. Do you guys remember that when you got saved? Yes. Do you believe for a second that that was meant to only be for 
that moment? No. In fact, what does Jesus say? Return to your first love. Like this is supposed to be ongoing. You got revival in your heart. Let's keep it um, alive, life abundant. Um, One of the biggest revivals in the Old Testament was the deliverance of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And you might not put that in the revival category. I totally do. And I think it's a great example for us to look to and get our answers from because people cried out to God, step one. God responded with supernatural power that cannot be manufactured by humans. And he took them from a place of slavery and brought them to a place of deliverance. So I'm calling that revival. And so for that sake, we're going to spend a lot of our time today looking at that story, actually the next generation, as they determine whether or not revival is something that should be sustained. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're not going to quite get to it yet, but the whole last half of the message is going to be out of Joshua chapter 5. So Exodus 2, 23 through 25 says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and they Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groanings, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. They're starting in a place of groaning, realizing their desperate need for the Lord's intervention. There's nothing they could do on their own. Uh, You know, one of the Beatitudes from Matthew 5 is blessed are the poor in spirit. And some translations take it all the way. Blessed are those who are poor and realize their need for him. You are blessed when you find that you don't have the answers. You are blessed when you realize that you need a supernatural intervention because that is the first step to revival every single time. So the Israelites are crying out to God. They're groaning in their slavery. But let's look at the purpose of their deliverance. So God responded, right? He responded big. Ten plagues, um, the sea opens, the enemies are squashed, uh, victory, you know, the the, uh, Egyptians are giving their gold and their clothes to these former slaves. Like, oh, three hours ago I was your slave and now you're handing me your wealth and I'm walking off in victory as a kingdom of priests Only a matter of hours had passed. So this this was how God responded to their groaning, to their crying out to God. But I asked the question, to what purpose was their freedom? Why did God set them free? Why does God set us free? Why does God give us freedom? moments of outpouring of the Spirit in response to a heart cry. To what end? So I want to look specifically at the Israelites in this case, and we'll see what we can learn from them. So to what end did God set them free? Actually, here's just an overall thing. We know this in part, uh, Galatians 5.1. This goes for everybody. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So yes, part of the reason that God set them free was just so that they could be free. Just like God loves you so much, he sent his son to die on the cross so you could be 
free. You can live forever in freedom with Jesus. It is for freedom that he sets you free. But here's what I'm getting at too, and we'll see this more with the Israelites specifically, not just for your freedom. Yes, for freedom, but not just your freedom. You, well, let's just look at the scripture. Let's see how it all plays out. So for the Israelites specifically, uh, the aforementioned covenant that God made with Abraham spells out the purpose of Israel's deliverance. So this is some 400-something years before uh, Israel was set free from their slavery in Egypt. In Genesis 12, 2, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is this is part of what needs to happen because this is God's covenant that he established with Abraham. And so now he's telling the Israelites, I'm setting you free, but I've got a purpose. All the peoples of earth are going to be blessed through you. Genesis 15:13 through 14. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So there's the promise that it's going to happen 400 years earlier. Genesis 22, 17 through 18. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So, this was the plan set up from the get-go for Abraham's descendants. This is what the deliverance out of slavery in Egypt was about. They're going to go to this land full of wickedness, and they're going to take this land for the kingdom of God so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They're going to take possession of the city of the enemies. And so that means there's, there's a duty, a mission, something that's required. So let's just keep that in mind as we go on. So two purposes for deliverance so far we've covered, and for all revivals. Um, take enemy territory, and, uh, and so one of them is take enemy ter- territory and bless all nations. And then, by the way, just don't misquote me as we're going to see, taking en- enemy territory today is not physical because we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness and so forth. So just have that in mind. There's some land we're going to be taking, but we're going to be taking it from darkness, and we're going to be taking it for God, not through violence of the flesh, but through violence and intercession and worship and crying out to God and so forth. Anyway, so that's, that's purpose. I call it purpose number two. Take enemy territory and bless all nations. Purpose number one, though, know the Lord. We get this from Ezekiel 29, 21, one of the bajillions of passages in the scripture that talk about the purpose is to know the Lord. And the day will come when I will cause the ancient glory of Israel to revive. That's why I chose this verse. It's actually talking about the purpose of revival in this particular circumstance. The ancient glory of Israel to revive. And then Ezekiel, your words will be respected and they will know that I am the Lord. That's what it's all about, knowing He is the Lord. Knowing the Lord for Himself is the purpose of revival, to know Him. 
And you might also notice that Ezekiel the prophet, the man bringing the scripture, is probably at a time where his words are not respected. But when they know that he is the Lord, then the words of scripture become respected, as it says right there in that verse. So Exodus 8.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me so that they may worship me, to know the Lord, to worship him, not just to know about him, but we are getting delivered for worship. The two end goals of Israel's deliverance and the two end goals of all revival, as I mentioned just a second ago, to know the Lord, to bless all the nations of the earth, which happens to be, coincidentally, related to the two greatest commandments, which we can read about in Matthew and it says, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the demands of the prophets hang on these two commandments. First, encounter with God. You are set free so that you can be free, so that you can have encounters with a God who loves you and who wants to work miraculously in your life so that you can go over here to the people that God loves and love them and let them have these sort of encounters with the living God. It's the ministry of reconciliation, bringing all things back to the intended order of Christ, which is beauty, just like Tohu wabohu, chaos and emptiness brought to beauty and order. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groanings, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And we talked about this. In desperation, the people's heart aligned with God. And sometimes it takes desperation. Uh, However, here's the thing about that statement. We are always ridiculously in a desperate situation, but we believe a lie a lot of the time that we're okay. You see, we are desperate for Jesus at every moment. We are desperate for his intervention. And so, Lord, reveal your goodness and reveal our need for you. Sometimes it takes having things happen where it's like even we can't deny we're in a desperate situation, and that's how it was for them, enslaved in Egypt. But when you realize that you are desperate for him, it doesn't matter if you are running a Fortune 500 company or if you're a slave in Egypt. Like It doesn't matter where you're at. When you realize your need for him, that's the first step to revival. That's where he is ready to pour, pour out his response. And their salvation, the uh, Israelite salvation coming out of Egypt, would be unto the conquest of the enemy land and the salvation and blessing of the whole world. And as I said, since the cross, how is the enemy land brought under the banner of Jesus when hearts submit to the rule of the true king? And when... The true king's authority is manifested in, in, in the realm. Um, so God responded to the Israelites' cries with miracles and power and deliverance and blessing. But it, 
uh, was it meant to stop out of they got, out, after they got out of Egypt? Of course not. We just talked about that. They were supposed to go on. So God poured out power, miracles. You're set free and you're blessed and you're walking out with gold and, and the clothing of your uh, captors and you're walking out in victory, standing as a nation of priests and it's just awesome. But for the purpose of going to the promised land to get the rest of the promises that God has for you. And when you get there, then the whole world will be blessed when you continue in his work. And I think this is where we come to why revivals sometimes fade out. I think that we really enjoy this outpouring and getting the blessings. Because I certainly do. It's really awesome. And if you haven't experienced it, well, let's do the first part so we can. Let's cry out to God desperately that he would pour out his presence on us. And then we can experience that glory and that beauty and just honor him and worship him for it. But God has a purpose for our lives too. We're supposed to take this and then move out and accomplish his purpose the next day phase of revival, taking it to where God wants to take it, rather than just standing there forever on the borders of Egypt saying, you got any more gold for me? This is fun. I don't want to go over there. I like this. Now, their next objective was to walk in revival through the wilderness and into the promised land where they would raise the banner of the Lord over every enemy territory and bless all nations. Is that what they did? No, at the first sight of opposition, they gave up. God seems to use revival to mature us. And it seems to me he does it in three steps. You can break it down however you want to, but I kind of see three, three steps in a circle. <laughs> One, he requires us to give up our self-dependence. That's the prayer part, desperate need for you. Two, he pours out his spirit in a mighty way and brings about miraculous deliverance. And then three, it seems to me, he calls us to continue to walk in faith based on the testimony of what he did in the outpouring of the spirit, to continue to take it um, to the day-to-day, -day, into the trials, through the trials, to continue to take it. And I think that's where we often fail. When we experience revival, we often try to stay in the unmerited outpouring uh, without doing the next part, partnership and obedience. Revival, I don't believe, is meant to be an event. I believe it is taking broken things and allowing God to put them back together again. It's the world returning to God's created order. It's meant to exist in the home as parents make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for their kids. And as dad makes a presentation at work. Or as you feel... That slight nudge you're trying to deny is God talking to you saying, why don't you do this next thing that seems a little bit scary? Like, why don't you tip your waitress really well and pray for her? Why don't you go and hand out Gospel of John's at the beach? By the way, I'm really excited about this church right now because I believe the church right now is catching on fire with some of this passion, some of this phase three of revival because I'm watching... Uh, 
little groups of people going out and taking the next steps, doing the things that are a little awkward. Um, I'm going to point out some people right now so that you can get around them and join them on these adventures if you want to, or go start your own. So Ezra, it's his birthday today, right? 19. Raise your hand. So on a lot of Fridays, he just gathers a bunch of people. It doesn't matter if they go to this church or what ages they are or whatever, um, and they go evangelizing at the beach, and they hand out Gospel of John's, and they talk to people, and they pray for them. It's really awesome. Dolores, over here, way in the back. Look over there. Raise your hand, Dolores. She is going to start this Tuesday, you said? Tuesday, she's going to be setting up a table in front of the library, and she's going to be handing out Bibles and books and testimonies and, and all sorts of stuff to anybody who wants them. And then people just in their daily life, like Lori right here, everybody knows, Lori, raise your hand. She often goes out treasure hunting because all people are treasure. She wants to get some for the Lord. And, uh, but uh, she also doesn't care about certain days. She just does it all the time. So go find these people. There's people all throughout here that are like doing the next thing, doing the next thing. Like, Lord, what is the next thing you have for me? Um, and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes we have to go through something really terrible, but we don't give up because the next thing is right beyond it. Um, we are called to go to the promised land for the benefit of others. To what end did God pour out a spirit on the day of Pentecost that they might know the Lord and bless all nations? It, it's that all the time. Reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. All right, now, now let's go here and we'll finish up and we'll going to cruise through Joshua 5. So, as we mentioned, the Israelites, they experienced revival. But then, they sent out the spies, because God wanted to show them, look what I'm going to do for you. Look what I'm going to overcome for you. Go look at your potential trials. And so, they did, and they came back, and they're like, yeah, it's too scary. Big, bad world. Yikes, no, don't want to do it. And so they weren't permitted to go into the promised land. So they were stuck there in the wilderness, and God still blessed them, and he gave them supernatural provision, manna from heaven to eat, and their sandals didn't wear out, as Tony mentioned earlier. But they weren't able to fully step into the purpose of that deliverance until the next generation, the ones who were the little kids, and they grew up. And now it's time, and they're ready to go. And the first thing they do is, um, so there's a river, it's the Jordan River, and it separates the promised land from, from the wilderness where they were at. And they're walking in obedience. The water parts just like it did when they were leaving Egypt in the previous generation. The waters parted, and they came through because this generation was a generation that was going to say yes to God. We're going all the way. We're not just going to stop here in the wilderness and remember the good times we had in the old revival. We're going to take revival to the next phase. We're going to go into the big, bad, scary world. We know that we can't do this in our own strength, but we're going to rely on his power, and he's going to do it. So they said yes. And the first thing that happens is they experience the same miracles that their fathers experienced. And then this happens right here. Let's start at chapter 5. 
When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan so the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. This is how your enemy thinks of you when you say yes to Jesus. Guys, the spirit of fear, the spirit of infirmity, the spirit of anxiety, the spirit of chaos looks at you and trembles in fear. If you say yes to Jesus, there's nothing special about you. You're just as pathetic as I am. But you have God in you, and the enemy is terrified if you say yes to Jesus. But if you don't say yes to Jesus, then you'll be on the other side of the Jordan doing nothing talking about old times. Then it says, at that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise this second generation of Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Joshua had to circumcise them because all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who left Egypt had all been circumcised, but none of those born after the exodus during the years in the wilderness had been circumcised. The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all men who were old enough to fight in the battle when they left Egypt had died, for they had disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed he would not let them enter the land he had sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua circumcised the sons, those who had grown up to take their father's places, for they had not been circumcised on the way to the promised land. After all the males had been circumcised, they rested in the camp until they were healed. This is talking about the new commitment. Our, we, we might have experienced revival in the past, it might have faded away, but this time of circumcision means, you know what? I'm serious about going the next step now. I'm serious about taking revival into the world, not just in the church. I'm serious about this. I'm going to circumcise. So we circumcise our hearts. We circumcise what is in my heart that I need to cut off to make this serious. These things that I used to depend on, I'm cutting off. These things that I used to love and give my devotion to, I'm cutting off because right now it's all about one thing. It's about the glory of the Lord. So here Joshua had the people get circumcised as a commitment to going the next step. Then, verse 9, the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal to this day. Do you see? He didn't say this. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if he said this to the previous generation, but he's telling this generation is today. You guys, half of you weren't even alive when you were slaves. But you know what? All of you are bearing the identity of slavery. But today I've rolled it away because you said yes to Jesus. I've rolled away the shame of slavery. Whether you were born to it or not, you bear that identity. But no more. You are free. While the Israelites were camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the first month. The very next day they began to eat unleavened bread and roasted grain harvested from the land. No manna appeared on the day they first ate from the crops of the land, and it was never seen again. So from that time on, the Israelites ate from the crops of Canaan. Two things. First one, they celebrated Passover. It's the first thing they do 
after making the commitment. They're going to remember why they're set free. The blood of the lamb, the Passover, which was only ever a picture of the blood of the true lamb of heaven, Jesus Christ, who would die on the cross to set all men free who would accept that gift. That's what we did today. We took the drink and, the, and we took the bread to remember the blood that set us free. So that's the first thing they do is they remember how it happened. It is him who loved us enough to set us free by the shedding of blood. So they take that, and then their crutch that they've had for 40 years, their training wheels, the manna, God was like, I'm going to help you out spiritually. I'm going to give you this bread for 40 years. You don't have to work for it. It's just going to appear like dew on the ground, and you can you know, take the grain and make bread and stuff with it. He did that for 40 years. But that was never the promise. It's cool. It's a blessing from God. But it's training wheels. The promise was, I'm going to take you to this land where you can grow fruit and eat of the fruit. Have the promises. Enjoy the promises that I have for you. But it takes partnership with me. It takes work. And so they said, yes, we will work with you. And so they circumcised themselves. They walked through the river. They stepped foot on land. And the training wheels are taken off. The training wheels are taken off. Manna was never seen again on the land. Now they have the opportunity to enjoy the Lord's blessings as they partner with him, as they say yes to him. And here we are at the last paragraph or two. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied, I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? This point is also critical. We might get excited about the things of God and then form our own agendas and try to go make them happen. But it's the Lord's agenda that matters. God is not for us. We want to get on his side. We want to find out what he's doing. We want to fall down at the feet of God and say, what would you have me do? And then measure our success by our obedience, not by any other results. And so he does that. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did what he was told. And this is how I want to end. Joshua and the millions of Israelites, um, they said yes to Jesus. We are going to embrace revival to the fullest. We're going to constantly cry out to God. We're going to experience the outpouring, and then we're going to partner with God in going forward into the promises, and we're just going to keep crying out more spirit, more obedience, and each time he's going to mature me, and we're going to accomplish more for the kingdom of God. So they, they, they decided to do this in their heart, and so as soon as they get to enemy territory, right before them is Jericho, they haven't done a single thing against the enemy except say yes to Jesus, and already the Lord says to Joshua, this, which was enemy territory, this is now holy territory. And all you did was say yes. So, so, I don't know. What do you think? Is revival meant 
to be sustainable? I believe it is. So I say let's, let's cry out to God and let's go do the things that scare us a little bit. Let's walk in obedience and then let's cry out to God and let's walk in obedience just over and over again and just watch what happens in this world around you.